the sense of self is usually around the middle part of the uh, prefrontal lobe and in the insula deeper. But they'll have someone from the US, for example, who's an individualist, and they'll say, talk about yourself, and that part activates. And they say, talk about your mother, your friends, it goes somewhere else. And you would think, okay, that's a universal neuropsychological process, and that's how it is. But you go to a collectivist culture like Korea, Japan, China, and you ask him, talk about yourself, and that lights up. Talk about your mother, your friends, and it stays there. So it's a collectively learned brain function. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Girlfriend Doctor podcast. It is Dr. Anna Kabeca, and it is my mission and my passion to help women live better lives before, during, and after menopause. So welcome. The Girlfriend Doctor podcast, as you know, it is an intimate place for intimate conversation, and I am here for you. You can ask or tell me anything. No shame, no guilt, no apologies. We pull back the curtain on all things related to perimenopause, hormones, sexual health, libido, PMS, you name it, we're going to talk about it. So our goal is to shine light on your overall wellness physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. So let's get started. Today I have as a guest, Dr. Mario Martinez, and he was highly recommended to me by a dear friend and founder of Paleo FX named Keith. And so I want to share with you a little bit about his background and you'll quickly know why I was so excited to bring him on the podcast and share him and his vast research as well as his perspective with all of you. Dr. Martinez is a clinical neuropsychologist who specializes in how cultural beliefs affect health and longevity. He proposes based on credible research evidence that longevity is learned and the causes of health are inherited. He has studied healthy centarians, that is 100 years old, 100 years or older. He studied them worldwide and found that only 20 to 25% can be attributed to genetics. The rest is related to how they live and the cultural beliefs that they share. He is the author of the best selling book, The Mind Body Code How to Change the Beliefs that Limit Your Health longevity, and success that teaches his theory and practice of biocognitive science to the general public. In addition to longevity, he also explains why our immune system is not just a protector. Instead, it responds to the cultural premises we learn to perceive in the world. His area of interest that I just find fascinating can be wrapped up in the term psychoneuroimmunology. I mean, doesn't that just sound fabulous? He's just fabulous. He's been all over the internet. He's been featured with Deepak Chopra, with Dr. Christiane Northrup in the Huffington Post, Medium Journal, I mean, just name it and is just a powerful resource. So I welcome you, Dr. Mario Martinez. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. It's fun being here. (laughs) It's a good place. Welcome to the Girl Doctor podcast. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about how you evolved into studying centarians on this journey. When I was training to be a neuropsychologist, we learned what happens when the brain, when there's sickness or when there's trauma, So we knew a lot about the pathology of the brain, but was very little studying on what is the healthy brain and what are the the expansions of the brain. And I was always very interested in in longevity and healthy longevity. So I thought that the best way to, to, to do something in science is to go to where it works and then to come up with some theories on, on what was going on and how it works. So the best way to go to find out about longevity is with healthy centenarians, people who are over a hundred or, or over. And I went all over the world, and I also looked at areas where um, others have looked, uh, the blue zones that they call them, five areas in, in the world. But in the United States, for example, uh, centenarians are the fastest growing segment of the population. There are about 90,000 centenarians so far in the United States. So it's really happening in a way that we really need to put some more um, focus on it, because uh, I thought, and, and most people with reductionist medicine think, well, it's got to be the genes, and it has to be. They even have some genes that they call the Methuselah gene, and or the or the long telomeres and things like that. And, and it really is not that. 
as you mentioned earlier, uh, it's 20 to 20 percent, 20 to 25 percent uh, genetics, and the rest it's just what I call biocultural, which is the not only the uh, food that they eat and the place where they live, but the way that they look at the world based on the culture that they learn. Hmm. What are some of these ways? What are the lo- the longevity pearls and you know, we, we know about the blue zones. What did you find that were the cultural habits or the cultural perspectives, views that creates longevity? When I worked with them, I was looking for the causes of health. And I argue that, that the causes of health are inherited. We have over 150,000 years as homo sapiens with trial and error on how to keep the body healthy, not how to break the body down. But those causes of health need to be triggered. And I think that's what centenarians do. They trigger the causes of health. So, for example, a typical centenarian, number one, believes that everybody loves them. They have this, what my mentor, George Solomon, called healthy narcissism. They feel that everybody loves them. And immunologically, psychoimmunologically, it's not whether people love you or not. It's if you believe that you're being loved. And love is a very powerful immune enhancer, a very powerful cause of health. So that was one of the things, but they have what I call inclusive narcissism. And uh, to give you an example, I went to Cuba to study some of the uh, centenarians, and there was one centenarian, 102-year-old, and they gave a little cocktail party for him after we had the interviews and all that. And there were women and men, and he comes up to me and he says, have you noticed how the women are looking at me? They love me. So that, but then the inclusive is, but have you noticed how beautiful they all are? He brings them into his narcissism. Not the pathological, which would be how can I manipulate someone? It's I am I. They love me because they're beautiful. So that's one example, and many of them have that sense. And they are outliers. They don't buy into the cultural components of things. For example, they don't buy into the usual uh, what I call uh, false uh, humbleness that we're taught in our cultures. We're taught uh, succeed, 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 but don't brag about it. When people tell you that you're smart, they say, "Oh no, I'm not that smart." So you have to learn to succeed. And then when you succeed, you have no way to, to show it or express it with anybody. A little girl will say, mommy, look how, uh, how pretty I am. And, and say, no, no, darling, you don't say you're pretty. You wait for people to tell you and then you deny it. <laughs> I love your hair. I haven't washed it in three days, that kind of thing. And centenarians are not that way. Centenarians, a 101-year-old woman who is very attractive, I said, uh, you know, you're very attractive. And she said, yes, thank you. I've, I've always been very attractive ever since I was a little girl. So you see, they're outliers. They don't buy into the cultural restraints that actually keep you from, from thriving and from keeping yourself healthy. Mm. They don't buy into, I'm writing this down, don't buy into the cultural restraints. And the culture will tell you, uh, and, and the way that I define culture, because I bring what I'm bringing to psychoneurology is a new component is culture, anthropology. I think, and I'm creating cultural cultural psychoneurology, which means that how does the immune system, nervous, and endocrine system respond in a cultural context? And culture is really the collective beliefs of anything that's important in life, like aesthetics, ethics, wellness, longevity, illness, all the important things that we believe as a collective is what we would call culture. And the way that, that I look at the brain, the brain is cultural and the immune system responds to the cultural brain. The world can be interpreted in many, many different ways, depending on your culture, if it's individualist culture or collective culture. But then what the culture does is it creates a fabric around the world. And what the brain perceives is the fabric that it learned to perceive. So it even goes to the, uh, to the brain. It even goes to the, to the neuroscience. For example, most cultures in the West are individualist. The individual is valued more than, than the group. In uh, social settings of, of uh, the uh, Asian cultures, they're more collectivist. So, for example, when they do an, an MRI, a functional MRI, which is a dust scan and it looks at how the brain responds to different things based on blood flow. So the sense of self is usually around the middle part of the uh, prefrontal lobe and in the insula deeper. But they'll have someone from the U.S., for example, who's an individualist, and they'll say, talk about yourself, and that part activates. And they say, talk about your mother, your friends, it goes somewhere else. And you would think, okay, that's a universal neuropsychological process, and that's how it is. But you go to a collectivist culture like Korea, Japan, China, 
and you ask him, talk about yourself, and that lights up. Talk about your mother, your friends, and it stays there. So it's a collectively learned brain function. And all of it is that way. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. So it's that inherent wiring of our brain. Like, And what we're talking about, something I've been talking about a lot lately is post-traumatic resilience or post-traumatic growth. Like how do some people bounce back after a trauma and others are continue on in victim mode? And so certainly there's some psychoneuroimmunology at play here. Yes, yes. And, and as you know, the uh, post-traumatic stress uh, model, uh, it, it suggests that, that what happens is you have a traumatic experience that uh, you can't process at the time. So the brain compresses it and puts it away and to bring it out later when, when the trauma is over, but you don't bring it out later because it causes anxiety. So then you have post-traumatic stress and you have all these other things happening. That's the compression. But what happens though is some people who are not as resilient then we'll use that as a way of dealing with the world and controlling the world. That's uh, the victimhood. And other people want to come out of it and want to be resilient. And, and in, in American psychology, there's a lot of work in resilience. But in the French psychology, there's resilience plus thriving. So they look at the thriving component of uh, the resilience. And that usually happens when a person does not adhere to the benefits of being sick of having the attention of a doctor or the family, or if they say, no, I can't do this because I have post-traumatic or because I was abused or whatever, that gives you a lot of power. So it has a lot of secondary gains. But also something that I don't think most people talk about is that when you have any kind of illness, any kind of disorder, any kind of problem that stops you from being what you could normally do, one is that it allows you to not have to do things that you don't want to do. That's the, uh, the secondary gain. But the other one that I study more, which I think is more interesting, is what is it that is coming up that's good in your life, but you know you don't feel worthy of accepting, and you stop it with your illness or you stop it with your disorder. So I think in any healing, whether you do allopathic medicine or any kind of medicine, two questions need to be asked. What could you do if you didn't have this illness that you don't want to do, that you have to set limits? And what would you like to do that you can't do, but you might feel unworthy of, and it's usually good things. Those two things need to be asked always, because you will find that, uh, that it's related to the lack of growth. And it's related to what the culture teaches you. For example, some cultures will teach you that 45 is middle age, and after that you go downhill. And that's exactly what happens. Some cultures in, in Europe, will, uh, the social services will give you a cane at 55, because they say eventually you're going to need it. And there's a higher level of, of use of canes because of that. In fact, if you use a cane, if you don't need it, your body will adjust to the cane rather than you to, to the cane or the cane to you. And you begin to walk with cane consciousness. Wow. You know, that, that I mean, it makes sense. I love this. You know, for me, like from post-trauma, understanding also the physiology behind it that allows to immunocompromise. So the you know, cortisol, cortisol, cortisol. And then that I would say, you know, from my understanding, cortisol goes up, oxytocin goes down. When cortisol's up too long, PVN of the brain, paraventricular nucleus of the brain shuts down cortisol. Now you're in this very dangerous disconnect state. Oxytocin's down, cortisol's down, it's burnout, social, social isolation, depression. And then there are a series of steps that you know, that I had to learn to reset my circadian pattern, to reestablish my oxytocin, to master oxytocin in my life once again, and to pull myself out of what I mentioned before we started, that deep, dark hole of despair. Yes, very much. And um, as you know, that you're, you're right about the stress hormones, the uh, cortisol and epinephrine or epinephrine, but you actually can do a transgenerational epigenetic transfer for example, people that their great-grandparents or grandparents were in, in Auschwitz and other concentration camps, they pass on epigenetically the high level of cortisol, even though those people were not in, in, in concentration camps. So you're passing on epigenetically to your next generation the kinds of traumas that you have. Even to the third or fourth generation. That's right, yes. And how do we get out of that? Well, there, there's some methods that I talk about in my books, but but basically the idea is that that is a learned process. Even if it's epigenetically learned, that can be unlearned. But you first have to be aware 
that that's what you're carrying. And it has to do what in neuroscience they call the default mode. Default mode is, is the, the lens that we use to look at the world. And defa that default mode is learned by your culture, even epigenetically. But for example, if you do a relaxation or some, some contemplative techniques or whatever, you can get very relaxed. When you come out, you go back to the full mode and you're on alarm again. So the way to change the default mode is to be aware that there are terrains that support default mode and the terrains that don't. But you have to be aware that you're most susceptible to your default mode just when you wake up and just before you go to sleep. So when you wake up, you're, you're, you're getting into that dumping your dreams into the day. And at night, you're dumping the day into your dreams. So one way to check out the default mode is you wake up in the morning and look at do a stream of consciousness and find out what kind of things come to your mind. And you'll find some kind of lens there. Like, for example, some could be one that you're excited about what's going on for the day. The other one is after you have to be on alarm because some people are out there to get you. Others are to punish yourself. Uh, so they, they have a, a, a way of archetypally living it out. And then what happens is that the brain, anything that you repeat will consider it to be important for uh, survival. If you repeat bad things, they're survival. So then what it does is that cognition will try to confirm what the brain is repeating. And if you have a, an alarm mindset, you're going to look for alarms throughout the day to, to support your belief system. And then some studies that have, I do some work with Fortune 100 companies and management and that kind of thing, teaching them these things. And you can put a crisis intervention manager who deals with, with crisis in a particular department. And within two weeks, there's a crisis every day because they create what their brain tells them that is the world. And so learning these things, then there's some techniques that you can do that, uh, that, uh, that actually teach you to change the neural maps that maintain that, uh, that default mode, because it's a network of uh, the prefrontal lobe and the part of the brain that, that deals with uh, registering anger and fear and uh, the hippocampus, uh, the amygdala, it's, it's a network, but that could be changed by the work that you do with learning that you have evidence that that's true based on what you believe, right? But you can begin to create some evidence that counters that belief. So I'll give you an example. Your, your, your tribe tells you that women are not good with directions. Okay, so you buy that. And then what you do, since culture editors, people are very important that we pay attention to when we're born, then we begin to buy it and we begin to confirm that we're not good. And then if one day comes and you're very good with directions, you say, ah, oh, that's just lucky. I'm not good with direction because I'm a woman. But then what you do is you begin to defy the culture. You begin to defy the tribe and say, now, let me see if I become mindful and become aware of my abilities to do things like I have in other areas to see how well I can do with uh, directions. And then you begin to look for evidence that existentially confirms that what they were telling you is wrong. Then you begin to create neuromaps. But you can't just uh, do affirmations and say, I'm good with direction. No, the brain doesn't work that way. It requires embodying the information and practicing it so then the, the perceptual system changes. And then you can defy the tribe and be aware that the co-authors of the tribe and the culture editors of the tribe are still going to persist in seeing you as not being good with directions. So you have to be aware of the, of the dialogue that you're going to have with those people. Because they'll say, well, you're not good with direction. Well, uh, that's, what you, that's what you think. And I, 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 I can accept that. But let me tell you, I, I found some really good evidence that that's not true. Oh, no, you're bad. With, and then don't argue. Never argue because you're, you're, you're rerunning old scripts and you go back into being the little girl. That's a powerful statement. You know, just embody, like embody your truth, essentially. Embody what is true to you versus the, the lies that have been told about you, like not being good with directions. Embody what's true to you and practice it. It's like disciplines and practice recreate positive patterns or negative ones, depending on what we're rerunning as far as a script in the same way, you know, post traumas. So things that make one person 
a victim versus another person grow and flourish. I like the word flourish. So instead of thrive, thrive sounds like I have to work for it, but just flourish is that opening up. So maybe it's more feminine. It's my bias. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to work for both, but yes, they're both good. They're both good uh, names for it. Yeah. And so centarian, so as your journey around the world, what are, are some other, right now, let's just actually, let's step back in. One of the main reasons is what I've seen happening in, in my community groups and, and certainly in many of my clients, past triggers and traumas are resurfacing and negative behavior, short tempers, uh, lack of tolerance is also resurging. And why at this time? And then what do we do? Even if, you know, we don't need to know why, but what do we need to do as leaders of our community groups? What do we need to do to further inspire, change that direction, pull them up, pull them out? First, let me give you some good news about centenarians. About three days ago, there was a report that this 102-year-old woman from Italy beat the coronavirus. And a 95-year-old man from the United States beat the coronavirus. So, so much for age. It's nothing to do with age. It has to do with the immunological defense that you have. But I think what happens in, in times of trauma, post-traumatic stress and, and, and traumatic kinds of uh, situations are very contextual. If you have a, a car accident and you have post-traumatic stress and you smell the gasoline from, from the leaking car, anytime you smell gasoline, you'll have a reaction. So it's a very contextual. So that anytime that there's a trauma, like for example, or, or, or a uh, pandemic like the coronavirus and other things, it'll put you in, into alarm even more than other people if you had other traumas because the brain is saying, this is the history of what I have from trauma, so let me throw the history in here, even if it's related or not. And the first thing to do is to be aware that it's contextual and then to be aware that the worst thing you can do during a traumatic situation is panic because panic is the best friend of viruses or anything else because it, it suppresses immune function. And then second, to learn some of the contemplative and meditative techniques that most people do and begin to look for outliers that are defying the norm. And the outliers that I mentioned today are the 102-year-old the woman, the 95-year-old man, which defy the system that says, well, if you're over, if you're over 65, you're, you're at risk. You're at risk if you're four if you have an immune uh, deficiency, there are children that have died already. And half of the, of the people that have been infected in, uh, or, or that, that test positive in New York are under 45. So age is a, a, a irrelevant. It has to do with the person, the individual. So how do we strengthen our immune system from the perspective of psychoneuroimmunology? Well, I wrote an article, I don't know if I, if I sent it to you, uh, that just came out in, in, in Medium. I had over 40,000 reads about how to actually increase immunological strength for the coronavirus or any upper respiratory virus. Okay, what we know is that IgAs are the antibodies that fight the upper respiratory viruses. And many years ago, David McClellan, who's a psychoimmunologist, did some research where, very interesting, he had a video of uh, Mother Teresa doing all the compassionate things that she does, or she did. And he measured the IgA's in the saliva, the IgA's in the saliva and the blood. And so in the saliva, it's a really good indicator of your IgA population and strength and so forth. And then he had another group where he had them watch the atrocities that the Germans, uh, the Nazis did in, in concentration camps. And he measured the IgA's pre and post. And for the first time in psychoneurology, they found that compassion brings up the IgA significantly, and it can stay up to six hours, but these kinds of atrocities bring the, the IgAs down significantly. So one protects you against the virus, the other makes you more susceptible to the virus. So there've been many, many other studies done after that, and it consistently shows not only IgAs, but interleukins and CTRA and other kinds of things go up when you're experiencing compassion or 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 dealing with compassion. But now there's a study that shows that it's even stronger than watching a video of Mother Teresa. If you go into technique, and that's what I talk about in the article, where you do heart breathing, what they call heart breathing, you breathe as if you're breathing from your heart. And although you're not, you pretend, you imagine as if you're breathing from your heart. And you get the brain coherence, or coherence between the brain 
and the heart rate variability in between beats. And that makes you much more susceptible to accepting new information. So that's the first part. And then after you do that, after you relax and you meditate, you, you breathe from your heart as if you breathe from your heart and you bring back memories of any compassionate act that you can remember. You were compassionate, somebody's compassionate with you, you saw a compassionate act, you do it for 15 minutes, and the IGAs will go higher even than with a Mother Teresa video. And you do that twice a day, it'll last six hours each time. So that's one example of what you can do. I love that. You know, as an obstetrician, I spent decades of my life listening to heart rate variability in the womb right? Fetal heart rate variability. And then somehow, you know, and then the lack of variability, I need to stack it, that baby out, right? That baby's stressed. And once the baby's born, we forget about that. But this heart rate variability is so important. And understanding part of my journey is after my son's accident, like my heart physically hurt. It hurt, Mario. And then understanding that there are oxytocin receptors in our heart. Not only are there oxytocin receptors in our heart, but the heart also produces oxytocin. And so the, it's a physical phenomenon that was, that's absolutely real. And can you explain that a little more? Yes. Well, that's right. There are portals that I, I call portals of, of, of uh, wellness. And one of the portals is the heart and they each have a, a biosymbolic uh, linguistic uh, correlation. So people will say, she broke his heart, so it's there, it's there. And what happens is that the, the heart, as you know, is, is more an endocrine gland than anything else, not a pump. It produces its own hormones and, and it has more connections with the brain than the brain with the heart. So the heart has an intelligence, has receptors uh, uh, that, are, that are intelligent. And, but look how interesting, if you look at somebody and you smile at that person, you have a warm smile for that person, both of, of you will secrete oxytocin. But if you do it on uh, FaceTime, it takes the immune system longer to respond and the, the, the endocrine system to respond to the oxytocin because it's not in vivo, it's not real. So it, it picks up on the eye self. So one way to bring up uh, oxytocin is to, of course, to love, uh, orgasm, uh, breastfeeding. But the most powerful way to bring oxytocin is to, again, do a technique where you get yourself relaxed, you create a terrain, where you think about all the people that have loved you and all the people that you love, oxytocin will go up again. Oh, that's right. And then feel it, not just to think about it, but to feel how that love feels. It has, that's extremely important. You, that's why affirmations by themselves don't work. Mm -hmm. and, they have to be, and they have to be embodied, which means that how do, where does it land in my body? And what is the sensation and the emotion that I feel? That's what creates a neuromaps, not just the intellectual. So in these now, you know, these times where we want to support our immune system in all ways, that we're looking to our centurions. And, and for me, it was looking at family members that came to the U.S. versus family members that stayed in war-torn countries and how they survived all the family members that came to the U.S. despite being older. And so that was really fascinating to me to say, okay, well, what are the attributes, what's going on besides the polypharma, that was a big one and something I'm, I'm so against, but besides the polypharma, but what were the cultural habits that people participated in? And certainly it was, you know, food as medicine and, you know, you eat together, there's community. We talk about the Mediterranean diet, how healthy that is and the red wine. I'm like, it's the people you're drinking that wine with. That's that right. That's right. It's one of the causes of health, by the way, breaking bread is one of the strongest causes of health without the eye self, without the computers. And it's powerful because it's in your DNA from the time of the caves and the forest. It was very important to break bread for survival reasons. Now it's for survival and for meaning. So I think one of the causes of health is breaking bread. But I'll give you an example on the resilience. Are you saying causes uh, of health? Like the cause of health? Yes. It's one of the causes of health that triggers that, that wellness immunological response. Love it. Rituals are very important. So rituals are powerful, and, and all centenarians have rituals. When I first studied one centenarian, it was in Cuba also. I went to Cuba. There's some centenarians over there, not because of the revolution. They're way before. <laughs> I asked her in an anthropological way, so I wouldn't bias that. I wouldn't say, what are your rituals? Because ritual could mean one thing for a while. I said, what are the things that you do 
that you enjoy and that give you a sense of connection with yourself and and that's something that you really look forward to. That's another way of asking for a ritual. And she said, 102, I have a shot of rum before I go to sleep. And I thought, oh, it's got to be the Cuban rum. There's got to be some qualities in the Cuban rum. Next day, I interviewed another centenarian, and I asked him the same thing. And he said, I have a cigar when I wake up in the morning. So finally, I got to a point that it's really the, the ritual, the belief system that you put into the culture component and connection that you make, but they never abuse rituals. I asked all of them, well, why don't you have another shot of rum? I, I don't need any more. That's all I need. Why don't, you, why don't you have another cigar? That's all I need. So I never found a centenarian that, that was, was uh, addictive or compulsive about anything that they had to do. They had a sense of balance, uh, benign boundaries. I like it. So you say things you do. That, so the question you ask, what are things you do or things you enjoy that is a connection with yourself and you look forward to? Yes. Okay. And of course, there's a difference between what I call what routines and rituals. Routines are things that you have to do because you have a function. You have to take a shower because you want to smell good and brush your teeth and that kind of thing. But a walk in the park, really not with your phones or anything, but connecting with nature, that is a ritual. A dinner with family is a ritual. Celebrating birthdays with family is a ritual. Even a funeral is a ritual. So these things come from way back and they have an epigenetic transfer that allows people to then live in the wellness, what I call the uh, centenarian consciousness, when they do those things, when they live like, uh, like the centenarians. Nice, nice. And what were some other things that you found? The ability to forgive is very important, but to forgive experientially, not intellectually. And uh, I, I, it's so important that I have a chapter in my book, The Mind-Body Code, about forgiveness, a whole chapter to explain that it has nothing to do with the perpetrator, it has to do with your interpretation, and it has to be dealt with experientially, not intellectually. That's a really important one. The other one is they have a sense of humor. They all have a sense of humor. And getting back to the resilience, they're not Pollyannish. They're not everything is wonderful. They know how to be sad, but they have a sense of humor. I'll give you two examples. One, I, inter- I interviewed, and he was, I think, about 101. I can't remember very well, but at, at over 100. And I asked him about, again, anthropologically, what are the things that have happened in your life that have been challenging lately, anything that concerns you? He said, well, he lost his vision when he turned 100. And, and I said, how did you feel about it? Oh, it's really devastating. It was terrible. I said, so, so how do you deal with it now? Is it, it's really good because when I see a woman, now I have to touch her to see who she is. <laughs> ah, I love it. <laughs> so the perspective, right? Perspective. Yes. Because another cause of health is righteous anger which is being angry about things that, that are appropriate, like, for example, losing your vision, or an insult to your innocence or somebody else's innocence. That anger is extremely important for the immune system. If you suppress it, it's bad for you. But if you take it out of context, it's bad for you because it becomes chronic anger. The other one becomes suppress and repress anger. So if, you, if something happens, you can get angry about it. Example, you're driving in the middle of traffic and a car just gets in front of you and almost hits you. And you get upset and you get, uh, that's righteous anger. But if you take it to work and you just can't wait to tell people what happened, that's no longer righteous anger. And people love misery so they can out-victimize you. They'll tell you, oh, let me tell you what happened to me. And then they engage in immune deficient behavior by doing that because it's out of context. Wow. So let's practically think three tips you want my audience to do on a regular basis that will boost their immune system and give them this peace. You know, we talk about the peace that surpasses all understanding the peace, the, you know, bring them into the eye of the storm and out of the storm. The thing to do is always look for an outlier in the family. So you don't buy into the family history of diabetes or whatever. You find uncle Joe who didn't have diabetes and look at how they function. You'll see that they're different. They're outliers. They don't buy into the culture. So that's the first thing to do. And then second is that we have, again, 150,000 years of trial and error on how to deal with trauma and adversity. So if you tune into yourself rather than to outside of you, you begin to get intuitive information on how to deal with things, and you put them in perspective also. The coronavirus, there are more deaths in car accidents than the coronavirus, and yet it's become what I call a, a pandemic of panic. It's serious. It needs to be taken seriously. It needs to be addressed. 
but it has doesn't have to be an overwhelming thing that actually makes you more susceptible to, to the pandemic. Uh, the other thing is that there was a major study, it's the, the, the longest longevity study that has been done by Harvard. It's been done for 75 years. And what they found, they looked at all the, the latest uh, diagnostics at the time, EEGs, now they do uh, brain scans, to see what, what is it that, that allows a person to be to have the healthy longevity and to be happy in their lives. What they found, the most important component is that these people believe that there's someone in their lives that they can count on. So that's extremely important. Isolation, when it's forced, is not good. But then you can make something of isolation like, uh, like monks do. Monks have a very good health and they're in isolation, but it's a choice that they make. So the isolation now, you go back into cave consciousness and you begin to do the things that were done in the cave. For example, you can't have a fire in the middle of the house, but you can have candle dinners, which is in your DNA. You see the fire and immediately you begin to, 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 to soften and relax. I'm excited. You know, this week I just purchased a, a fire pit table. So oh, perfect. Like I needed, I just felt like I needed to be outside more. I'm inside so much and I just felt this and every morning and every evening, not just me, but me and my daughters are sitting around this fire pit. So that must be cueing into that instinct. See the intuition? Yeah, you're tuning into that that process. And that another thing you do is that you another very important thing that's a cause of health that is also very recent research. Aristotle, way back, 2300 years ago, said that that hedonic pleasure was not enough. The pleasure for the sake of pleasure is not enough. He said that what he called eudaimonic pleasure, which is pleasure with service, it's better for you and for your wellness. Well, 2,300 years later, in psychoneurology, they looked at that and they thought, okay, well, let's see if we can measure what's called the CTRA, which is 21 genes in, in the um, immune cells that have to do with antiviral, antibody, and anti-inflammation. And they have to do, it's, it's a conserved transcriptional response to adversity. Okay, so they did psychological testing to see who, what group was hedonic, mostly pleasure for pleasure. For example, drug addicts are the most hedonic you can get. And then, you know, there's a range. So the hedonic that are mostly pleasure-seeking and the eudaimonic who are pleasure-seeking with, with service, with meaning. And they measured pre-post CTRAs and they found the CTRAs of the eudaimonic, people that have pleasure with, with service, was higher. So Aristotle was right. So what are some examples of eudaimonic people? For example, if they recycle, they recycle with pleasure, not because they have to do it because they're a good citizen or anything. They, they really take pleasure in keeping the environment uh, clean and, and enjoying going to the recycling places. Another one is uh, if you, for example, now in the time of the cave, you know that people that are isolated or are living alone, you go ahead and you call a friend who's alone and you have a conversation with them, you create a ritual that as long as you're going to be isolated, you can call them once a week or call her twice a week. That's uh, eudaimonic. But it has to be pleasure, not based on fear. Right. Or duty. Or duty. That's right. Right. I enjoy doing this. You I enjoy want doing that. And then, and then embody it. Then, then after you said, okay, I called my friend. I felt really good calling my friend. And I felt a lot of compassion for my friend. Then see where it lands in your body and let the emotions settle. That's what affects the CTRA. So, Mario, because I, I, I don't want to let you go quite yet. <laughs> I know, I, I will let you go, I promise. But um, I could talk to you for hours, if not days, for sure. And I enjoy our conversation. I'm very honored to have it. I wonder now what brings up, you know, what is shifting in people where they stop doing activities they usually enjoy during these times of chronic stress? So what is shifting in those people? When they have when they have to change change their uh, their activities, no, they are like say for example they used to enjoy take you know doing the recycling. Now they're like you know screw the recycling. I'm not doing it anymore. Or there's a shift there, and you know it's like that shift. But I, I noted in my in some people that I've been coaching, you know what what is that that shift? What is doing that? The chronic cortisol, I, I would say, it creates leaky gut, leaky brain, leaky heart, leaky everything. But yeah, it, it's it's really. Uh, uh, fear that that's massless anger, but it's really fear, and it's massless. Ah, I'm not going to do anymore. Look what's happening. It doesn't matter if I do that kind of thing. That helplessness is what creates that. 
But I think that when people go back to uh, to a norm, they, they have to go back and look at maybe recycling doesn't give me that pleasure anymore, but maybe calling a friend once a week who's alone might give me the pleasure. And you shift, but you keep the, the eudaimonic. It doesn't have to be all the time. You can have hedonic pleasure. I'm having a wonderful meal and I'm really enjoying That's good. But it can't be just that. It's got to have the service in it. So mm-hmm. that'll work. Mm-hmm. And to to feel that, to actually not just think it, but to feel it and to allow that to sit in your body, in your heart. I didn't start recycling till about a year ago because I didn't think I, I wanted to do it. But then I thought, I, I saw a lot of waste. And then I, I read about the, this area in the ocean that's almost the size of Texas with plastic. And I know this can't go on. At least I have to do something. So I started recycling. I said, but I'm going to do it at first to learn to enjoy it. So what I did is at first I didn't care about recycling. So I thought, okay, there's a restaurant that I love, Indian food. And then the, the other one is Mediterranean food. And I would do my recycle and then I would go do my, my lunch every Saturday. After a while, the recycling became very, very pleasurable for me because of what I was doing. So I created a ritual that has you demonic quality. I love it. I love it. That's fabulous. So you, you know, created just like we could negatively Pavlo's dogs, right? You created a positive association with an act. And so that you would do that more. Can't quite do that with exercise yet, but I'm working on it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, exercise, you know, what I found with exercise is that I exercised all my life and and I never wanted to go work out. And what I found is that there were certain things that I didn't like to do. And there were certain things that I'd like to do. And then you look for alternatives. For example, I didn't like to do crunches. And they're not really that good for you, but I had to do the crunches. So then I thought, how could I really enjoy doing crunches? And then I found that that Swiss ball, you do the crunches where, where you have that core balance. And now I can do 300 crunches a, a day without any problems. I enjoy it. But joy needs to come into the picture. Mm, always, always the more we can bring it into. So centurions have eudaimonic pleasure. Yes. Is that right? Can you spell that for me, demonic? U is E-U, and daimonic is D-A-E-M-O-N-I-C. And it's a Greek, U means good, and daimonic means spirit, so good spirit or, or wellness. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I was struggling with that. Eudaimonic. Eudaimonic. I love it. Okay. So creating pleasure with activities and bringing pleasure in, not for the sake of pleasure itself, but with the concept of service. And so that's a, that's a characteristic of centurions and movement, exercise, community, faith, right? Yes. There's some atheists and most of them are uh, spiritual, but even the atheists have some kind of cosmology that there's something greater than they are. Mm. Anything else you want to tell our audience today to take home? Well, the the positive of the culture and the negative of the culture. (laughs) The positive of the culture, it has a lot of good things in healing. It has the elders, for example, in in Native American tribes, when the generation disconnected from the elders, they developed all kinds of illnesses and problems and and, and alcohol. And I'm working now with some people who are actually bringing uh, healthcare systems. So we're bringing them back into connecting with the elders, connecting with the cosmology that they have. So find out what is good about your culture and see what you're not doing that your culture taught you that you can incorporate. But then also look at how your culture limited you and sometimes even berated you and begin to question that. So if you have that, then you create what I call a subculture of wellness, which are hybrids that you take the best of your culture and the best of your experience and you create something wonderful. And then you have to create, it's amazing and how important it is that you have to create a subculture wellness because we're social beings. We need to connect with people. When I say, look, I'm uh, 45 and I'm, I'm middle-aged and I want to go back to, to uh, college, for them to say, oh, what major? Instead of saying, why don't you start saving for your retirement? You're getting too old to be doing those things. You don't need the admonishments. You, you need the encouragements. So that's what I would, what I would recommend. I think that's great. Something you talk about too is abundance of, so that we can own our abundance of health, love, and wealth. Yes, I think that we are, we, that is an inherent quality that we have. But since we go with a merit system, and I teach how to get away from the merit system, the merit system, if you look at it, why is it that bad people have good things happen to them? And why the opposite? Why is it that, that bad things happen to good people? 
has nothing to do with the merit. It has to do with chaos. Sometimes it comes in no matter what. But also it has to do with how much you tune into the inherent qualities that you have already for your abundance of health, wealth, and love. They're all there. You just have to bring them out. I think it was uh, Loyola who, uh, I think, he, yeah, the founder of, um, of the Jesuits, he said, I pray to God to help me in my life as much as possible. And then I rely on the work that I do. I like, there's a quote, I have it all over. I have it on my wall, in my house, on my coffee cups. It is, she believed she could, so she did. <laughs> yes, yes. So I think that's so strong. It's not just about faith, right? It's faith with action. Well, and it is. And, and we tend to humanize things in God and make them a he or a she or whatever. And my favorite mystic, Meister Eckhart from the 13th century, he said, I pray to God that he rids me of God. <laughs> so he wanted to get rid of the image that, that humans create of God. So God would be not this, not that, not the via negativa. So, so it would be something beyond words, mm. the ineffable. Okay. I love that from Leola. Pray to God to help me, then I do what I need to do. I love these quotes. I've written down pages and pages of information. Mario, tell our audience where they can get your book and learn more about you and connect with you. Well, now, definitely Amazon. Don't go to bookstores. <laughs> and um, you can look up biocognitive.com. That's my, my website. And you can also go to, uh, I have a lot of free stuff on, on Facebook videos and my walks that I do, which is my ritual and I do topics. And that is facebook.com slash forward. And then just put mind, body, culture. And there my, my, my page shows up. Oh, perfect. Mind, body, culture. I love it. I love this concept of biocognitive and psychoneuroimmunology and how we have so much power over our, our physiology that our mind can direct our physiology with the right steps, with the right actions, right in the right environment. And that you know, for me, definitely love is the best medicine. I agree. And always ask if you feel that you're worthy of what you're doing. I love that. Because it's really hard. It's hard for women, especially, I think, maybe. Oh, yes. To feel worthy. And then the concept of in the menopause, post-menopause, where our society in America has, you know, diminished us and other cultures, have you found that the older woman is widely revered? I'll give you one more uh, pearl of wisdom here that I learned about menopause uh, that is cultural. In some countries in uh, South America, they call the, the hot flashes bochorno, which means shame. And shame causes inflammation. Shame causes the immune system uh, and, and the uh, endocrine system to secrete, especially in the immune system, pro-inflammatories like uh, tumor necrosis factor and other kinds of molecules. So even the doctors, although they know it's hormonal, they call it, she's having the symptoms of shame. Shame is inflammatory. And other cultures begin to see or see menopause as some kind of a problem of, of decreasing uh, sexuality and beauty and all that. And you have all kinds of problems, as you know well. And uh, you have the hormone replacement and you have pain and you have all the depression. But you go to Japan and other countries, and in Japan, they call it konenki, which means the second spring. Women increase their self-esteem. The hot flashes are not causing any problems. And they don't have the pro-inflammation that you have in other countries. Totally cultural. Mm, I love it. With konenki, they become sources of wisdom for other women. Sources so, of wisdom for other women. That's why they call it the second spring. Thank you. Say that word again, koniki, and that's in Japan. It's K-O. N-E-N-K-I, Konenki. Konenki, and that's in Japan? In Japan. In Japan. And what was the one for shame in uh, South America? Bochorno, B-O-C-H-O-R-N-O. Bochorno, which means shame. Bochorno. And shame, we know now, psychodemiologically, causes inflammation. And I, I've worked with many, many, many fibromyalgic uh, patients, and every single one of them had some kind of a major shaming trauma. Mm, increases inflammation and tumor necrosis factor. Tumor necrosis factor and interleukin-2 are secreted during... And look how, how biosymbolic the immune system is. Because if you say, look how stupid you are, that, those are words. But the immune system is biosymbolic and responds to language, just like the, the pathogens. And conquering shame through positive understanding your own self-worth. Uh, well, shame, there's some techniques that, that I use in shame 
is the, the antidote for shame is honor consciousness. And I use honor consciousness as an anti-inflammatory. That's in your book? Is that yes. in your book? Okay, tell us the name of your book. Uh, the Mind-Body Code. Mind-Body Code. All right. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It has been a pleasure. What a gift to have you. Thank you. Congratulations on your work. Thank you. Thank you. So much. Okay. Bye-bye. Wow. Now that was a fabulous interview that we just, it's, it's just so timely. We definitely needed it. I know I needed it too in that reminder. I think ending on that concept, there was so much. I took pages of notes talking about longevity pearls and how, again, epigenetics can be passed down to the third to fourth generation. It gives us the opportunity to break that passage, break that nail, to be an outlier for our families and to create wellness from our families and lead in this realm. I love the concept of how we go into resilience and thriving and move away from victimhood. And he said the first step for that was about being aware, being aware and just, you know, buy into the beliefs that are, that you can embody and practice these the, the positive characteristics. Don't buy into the disease mindset. Like when I had patients come into my office and tell me hysterectomy runs in the family. I'm due for a hysterectomy. I'm 43. <laughs> you know, I mean, we can break those ties. And what is the epigenetics? So 25% genetics, 75% environment, just like with diet, 25% about what we eat, 75% about the rest. And that's all in your book, The Keto Green Way. Definitely check out I am purchasing Dr. Mario Martinez's book, The Mind-Body Code. I think that is one for us to all read together and to continue to learn and to study this powerful connection as I share this with you, as well as Keto Green 16. Let's create the disciplines and practices that improve our immunology, improve our psycho-neuroimmunology as it is all connected. We cannot separate our mind from our body. So with that, I want to thank you with, for being with me and listening today. I am loving your testimonials and your reviews. So please continue, continue to share your reviews. And remember, because I am your girlfriend doctor and I am always here for you, please, any questions that come up that you don't want to share publicly and you can always connect in our community groups, but email my team at drannacabeca.com and just say, this question's for Dr. Anna. I heard her on this podcast and I have this question for her. So I can address that in future podcasts as well as in future lives that I do and share the answers with you and answer you and your concerns because I am here for you. So I encourage you right now, if you haven't already purchase Keto Green 16 with the bonuses that are available for you, which are just amazing. I had them here. The Quick Start Guide, I printed mine. I love it. The Food Roadmap and the uh, Feast Recipe. So fabulous bonuses that come, plus all the resources that we built in to the Keto Green book resources page, which if you have a copy of my book, you will see where those resources are so that you can share in all that additional abundance that I want to give you. So I want to thank you for being here. And I am so happy to be your girlfriend doctor. Bye till next time.